pray with me? God, we are so grateful this morning, gathered as your people, for the love that you have shown to us. We're grateful that the through line of Scripture, from the first pages to the very end, are about your love for us, your work to redeem us, and the love that Christ showed for us on the cross. We thank you for that. And we invite you, God, this morning to speak to us through the music, through the teaching from Scripture, through conversations with friends. Speak to us and help us see what it is. If there is anything in us that's holding us back from loving you fully and freely, God, speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You have a seat. Good morning, everybody. We are in this series and have been for several weeks now where we're taking a look at the overview of the major themes and characters in the Bible. And there we're in a section now where it is not possible. You don't have an attention span long enough. I don't have the energy to explain to you everything that's going to happen in every week as we cover major chunks of the Old Testament. So I'm hoping that the series encourages you to read the Bible for yourself, to understand what we're teaching through. This morning, we're going to look at the law. We're going to try to understand the significance of the law that God gave to Moses. And it's characterized multiple times in the Old Testament this way. These are the decrees, regulations, and instructions that the Lord gave through Moses on Mount Sinai as evidence of the relationship between God and the Israelites. Now, I would not want to presume that everybody in the room is fully acquainted with all of the Old Testament law. But I do think it's fair to say that we have at least some familiarity with the beginning of the law, because we've come to know that as the Ten Commandments. Those were the first things that God said to Moses, giving the law. And just as a refresher, here they are. Don't worship any other god but me. They were heading into a land that was polytheistic, and they were supposed to have a singular devotion to God. Don't, so don't worship any other God but me. Don't make an idol of any kind. Don't misuse the name of God. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Follow the work and rest rhythm that God modeled for us in the creation of the world. Six days he worked, one day he rested. And that one day is not about just not working. It's about worshiping God and keeping him at the center of your life. Honor, respect and care for your mother and father. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, and don't lie, especially, the law says, in a legal context. And then the final commandment seems to address a lot of why we break the other nine when God says to Moses, don't covet. Don't want something you don't have. Don't want something somebody else has that you think you deserve. Don't covet. Now, It's a good standard, those Ten Commandments are, to live by today. In fact, a lot of our laws are based on those Ten Commandments. A lot of cultures around the world base their laws on those principles. So let me just ask you, how do you think you would do at living those Ten Commandments every single day? Perfectly? Partially? I mean, I look at some of them and they're not that hard to live by. Don't murder. I... I don't typically go through the day with the thoughts that I could kill somebody. And and I don't have those thoughts this morning, so that should give you some level of comfort and peace. But there's others. I mean, I look at the list and I just do the self-evaluation and I go, I could do really well with six out of the ten every single day. 
And I'm not going to tell you the four I think I'd struggle with. <laughs> Figure that out and pin that on me wherever, however you like. But living by the law gets harder when we realize the law wasn't just these ten commandments. It contained a total of 613 specific commands from God. That's a lot of rules. What are your odds of success now? Mine went way down. Now, part of it is just our human nature and our penchant to struggle with rules that we don't understand and we don't see a clear benefit from immediately. Think about the first people that heard these commands. The Israelites were more than a million strong as they emerged from slavery in Egypt. They were freshly liberated and had been through 400 years of slavery where their lives were absolutely controlled by somebody else's rules every single minute our human tendency to rebel, it's not surprising that the Israelites would then struggle with God's laws. And that story unfolds through the rest of the Old Testament, this surprising cycle of how again and again they abandon God's ways. They walk away from Him, and then they act surprised that their life is falling apart. They run back to God and they beg for forgiveness. They beg for God to save them from trouble. And they beg Him to restore the relationship with him once again. So the law that God gave Moses was spelled out in four books of the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in great detail. The laws that God gave addressed things like social responsibility. How are we to treat each other in community, especially the widows, the poor, the orphans, and the immigrants in our world? The law regulated fair business practices, like If I'm going to charge you interest on a loan, what's fair? Should I even loan you money or just give it to you? And if I'm selling produce, my scales should be fair and accurate. The law prescribed a path to pursue justice in our relationships, and specifically what role the court would play when people or property were damaged. And then it also prescribed worship how we are to worship God and keep Him at the center of our lives. Now, you read the laws today, and some of them are just a little odd, right? Like, in the Old Testament law, God said, you can't combine two different kinds of fabric in one piece of clothing. You can't sew linen and wool together in a fabric. I have no idea what that was about. It may have had something to do with how some of the foreign countries identified themselves or identified themselves as worshiping a specific God. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just gives us that command. Some of them are a little odd. Some of them are just disturbing, to be fair. For example, in Numbers 15, God tells Moses this law that if a man suspects that his wife is having an affair and he has no proof, here's the steps he should take. You take your wife to the local priest, and the priest spell, you spell it out to the priest what your suspicions are. And then the priest prepares a sacrifice, and he prepares a nice little cocktail for your wife. He takes some of the holy water, and he takes the dust bunnies that are hiding in the corners at the temple, and he mixes it together. I, I am not making this up. 
It's actually weirder than this if you read it in Numbers 15. So you make that water up, and while the wife is offering a sacrifice to God, she has to drink the water with the dust bunnies in it. And here's the deal. If, in fact, your wife gets sick, then it means that she's guilty of having an affair. And if she doesn't get sick, then she's innocent, and you can trust her again, and you can go back home and have a happy marriage and a happy family, except it doesn't say anything about can the wife actually trust you again after you do something that weird, right? I mean, it sounds like it ought to be out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, not the pages of Scripture. That's when I read that, I just went, no, this is, no, just no. You know, I mean, before we judge the Bible too harshly, though, we have to remember that these laws were written more than three thousand years ago they were written in a very specific time period to a culture in that time period that was very specific and the laws that made sense then make our heads make us scratch our heads now and you can pick up other ancient law books codexes of of laws from the code of Hammurabi or you could pick up the Middle Eastern Assyrian laws These are real books from the same time period, and they have equally weird stuff in them that made sense 3,000 years ago, but doesn't make sense today. Honestly, you can comb over the laws in the state of Illinois, and you can find some weird stuff. I did just a little of that this week. Here's some of what I found. Illinois law forbids eating food in a place that's on fire. Good to know. It prohibits giving whiskey to your dog. Good to know. And it also prohibits fishing if you're seated on the neck of a giraffe. I just want to know the story that led to that law, right? And i got to be honest, I'd love to try fishing sitting on the neck of a giraffe, even if it is against the law. Specific cities have weird laws. Decatur, Illinois, it's against the law to drive a car that doesn't have a steering wheel. (laughs) Not too bright, those people in Decatur. That's what I'm guessing. In Joliet, if you plan to drive into town, the law is still on the books. It says if you're driving an automobile and you're coming into the city of Joliet, you have to call the police and let them know. I just want to call them next time. A decent, law-abiding citizen. My favorite one of all, though, my favorite one of all, is from Moline, Illinois. And in Moline, it is against the law to go ice skating in the months of June and August. (laughs) Evidently, Moline has this massive cold snap somewhere in July, and everything freezes over. That's okay. But you dare not get on the ice August 1st, because you'll be fined with a ticket. It's just crazy, right? Now, these laws were written at some point to address specific situations like some dude eating in a building while it's burning to the ground. And they made sense, but even a few decades later, they go, what in the world? These are goofy. The same thing can be true of laws in the Old Testament. Written to a culture that was polytheistic, that was patriarchal, that was polygamist, These laws were written to a culture where women were considered property and were treated harshly, where worship of false gods included bizarre and awful things like sacrificing your young children or your babies to try to gain the God's pleasure. 
Fertility cults abounded where sexual activity was a part of worship. This was a messed up world the Israelites were moving into in Canaan. And God stepped into this harsh reality and called the Israelites to live differently and gave a set of laws that would help them with that. And we may not understand each one when we read them because we're out of context. But if we take them together as a single body of work, we can begin to understand their importance. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament is uniquely qualified to help us understand the law. Because prior to accepting Jesus and becoming a traveling evangelist, Paul was a Pharisee. He actually identified himself as a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was really good at what he did. And what Pharisees did was study the law. They were religious scholars who studied and taught this law of Moses. In Romans, Paul writes about the purpose of the law and says this, The law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. That's the purpose of the law. It's why it was given, to show that we're guilty. We can't keep the law because no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we really are. The law that God gave to Moses intentionally sets a really high bar if you want to follow God. If you want to have a relationship with Him, you have, if you want to enjoy His blessings, you have to obey His laws, all 613 of them. There is no wiggle room in this. So here's the crazy thing that happens. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, gets just the first section of the law, kind of a Cliff Notes version, God sends him back down to deliver that to the people. So when Moses went down and repeated the instructions and regulations the Lord had given him, all the people answered with one voice and said, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. Really? That's a pretty optimistic promise. And if you read the passage, you you begin to understand it didn't last very long. Moses left them after this promise. He went back up the mountain. He started receiving God's commands. He wasn't gone more than a couple of days before conspiracy theories broke out in the camp. Moses must be dead. I mean, surely he'd be back by now. Who's going to lead us? Who are we going to follow? This God didn't protect Moses. What's he going to do for us? And it's just rampant in the passage. And eventually they go, you know what? We're going to have to find another God and another leader. Because this guy ain't working out for us. So they pooled all their gold together and melted it down and shaped it into a golden calf that they started to worship in hopes that whatever God had conjured up would be better than the one who obviously let Moses die and left them stranded. (coughs) Talk about a short attention span. We will do everything the Lord commands. Sounds good, right? We'll follow God fearlessly, flawlessly. Sounds so noble. And I think we sometimes make those same kinds of promises to God. Partly because when we do, it sets this achievable goal out there for us. I'm going to do this. I can do this. I can accomplish this. It puts us in control. It lets us feel like we're contributing something to the relationship with God. And we might never put it in the terms that I'm describing here, but we do this 
all the time. It was a rich man who did this to Jesus in Matthew's gospel. He tells the story of this guy who comes to Jesus and the very first thing he says to Jesus is, I've got this question. What good deed must I do to enter eternal life? He's asking a question most people ask. I mean, you can hear him saying, I mean, I'm a good moral person. That's essentially what he contributes to the conversation as it goes on. But here's the problem. How do we measure goodness? What's our standard to say I'm good or I'm bad? And how good is good enough to get me into heaven? I sometimes hear this coming out of people when I talk with them near the end of their life. And you start talking about, you know, are you sure about your relationship with God? Are you confident in that? Or do you know where you're going when you die? And I have people look at me and go, well, you know, I'm a good person. I'm responsible. I provide for my family. I take care of my friends around me. I've been faithful to my spouse. I serve in the community. I serve at my church. I mean, for goodness sake, I worked in the two- and three-year-old's room for two years. That's got to count for something, right? I mean, it's not like I murdered anybody. I'm a good person. It is, in, it is possible for us to live our entire lives and miss the point of the Bible. We live our lives thinking we're being a good moral person, and that's what God wants from us which leads us to live our entire lives wondering how good is good enough. I heard it in my father's voice just a few weeks before he died. And he's like, I mean, I hope I've been good enough. I hope God will take me. It leaves us insecure. The law answers the question about how good is good enough, but we don't like the answer. Have you ever lied? Even just a little lie? Did you ever steal something? I mean, not like a car in the parking lot after church, but maybe you were working on a project with your kids for school and you realized you didn't have the exact supplies you needed and they have an abundance of them at work, so you just take a few home with you to help. I might be confessing. Um, Have you ever gotten change at a grocery store that was more than you were owed, and you just slipped it in your pocket and went on your way. They're little things, right? I mean, I'm sure we've all done things like this. I'm still a good person, though, right? Trying to be good enough turns our relationship with God into a transactional relationship. I will exchange my goodness for your forgiveness. It puts us in a place of trying to earn our salvation. And in a transactional relationship, if that's what we want, the little things are big things. See, the law was given to give mankind one collective shot to earn God's favor. It gave mankind a chance to earn our relationship with Him. And the rules were really simple. Keep the law perfectly. Because whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. 
The law was given to highlight our brokenness, to show us just how futile it is to try to earn God's love, earn His forgiveness. The law highlights our sin and shows us that perfection is never going to be possible for any one of us. We will never be good enough, we will never do enough to earn God's favor. Pretty harsh, right? (laughs) Somebody after first service said, you know, I kind of wanted to leave about that point. It's just... It's painful. And Paul writes and says, the law is a cruel taskmaster. It's about justice. You want to be good enough? You'll get exactly what you deserve. I don't want to live in that kind of a relationship with God. Do you? And yet, even as you read the law, you begin to find God's mercy embedded in the harshness of the law. And if you look closely enough, you'll see that through the law, God is beginning to make a way for grace to enter this world. The law provided a way to be forgiven. When you discovered that you had sinned, whether it was intentional or accidental, the law that God gave Moses said, what you do then is you make a sacrifice. You exchange the sacrifice for your forgiveness. And so every day, all day, people would line up at the temple to bring sacrifices to purchase their forgiveness from God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that line looked like at the temple? What it would feel like to stand in line for hours to get there to make a sacrifice to be forgiven? God explains the necessity of these sacrifices in Leviticus 17 by saying, you see, the life of the body is in the blood. And I have directed that you are to take blood and offer it on the altar to atone for your lives and to cover your sins. It is the life flowing in the blood that atones for you and covers you. And so tens of thousands of animals were ceremonially slaughtered by priests for centuries. As the law of God established a main principle of forgiveness and a plan for ultimate forgiveness for us. Because everyone who came to the temple knew they had grown up being taught, they had lived out the fact that when you sin, it takes the blood of a perfect lamb to cleanse you. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. These sacrifices commanded by the law illustrate the deadly seriousness of all of our sins each of our sins, no matter how large or small we think they are, because sin is more than just a wrong choice. Sin is more than just a bad decision. Sin is more than just willful disobedience. It is all of that, but it is so much more. Under the law, we learn that any sin reopens the breach in our relationship with God. It resets the table. It puts us right back at square one, trying to earn his forgiveness. For that reason, Paul goes on to say, the law is helpless to break the power that sin holds over us. It takes a far greater sacrifice to accomplish that. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. There's nothing wrong with law. It's us. It is our weakness that keeps God's perfect law from redeeming us. It's our sinful nature that makes the law powerless because sin is like an addiction. 
It can take hold of us. It can cause us to act in ways that we never imagined. And so God did what the law could never do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son, the perfect lamb, as a sacrifice for our sins. The cross of Jesus deals finally and definitively with the reality of sin in our lives. Because by Jesus, we are not only forgiven, but we are liberated from the power of sin. It does not have to have control over us anymore. And God offers us, through Christ, the ability to escape the rigidness of the law, to escape the harshness of the law, and to live under grace. The choice is ours. Where do you want to live? God offers us the choice to accept his grace, and that grace changes everything. It fundamentally changes our relationship with God. It frees us up to live in his love and his forgiveness, to do things for him, because not because we're afraid of breaking a law, but because we love him. Because of grace, I am no longer held captive by the fear that the law engenders. I know where I stand with God. I know who I am. I am His beloved child, not because of anything I've done, not because of anything I will ever do, but simply because of what Jesus did for me. I am captivated by grace. My life isn't driven by guilt or fear or shame. I'm motivated by grace to follow Jesus and live by his teachings. I want to embody grace in every relationship in my life. And I want grace to fundamentally change my character, who I am. And I want to walk humbly in the grace of God as something that I didn't earn and I do not deserve, but I have accepted freely from him. I have accepted the gift that he started preparing for me all the way back in the Garden of Eden. His grace, his forgiveness. The best path for us in our lives is not the law. It's not trying to be good enough, not trying to earn God's favor. Our best path forward is through grace. To live by the grace of God, to live according to the grace of God, and to live every day through his amazing grace that he has given.